In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Nancy McQuellen of Shaman, New Jersey. Nancy will get a marathon decal showing. She watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Benjamin Frisch, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedural, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at SVU Season 1, Episode 5, Wanderlust. We have a convicted pedophile saying he didn't molest anybody and a dead guy who wasn't a pedophile who might have. Joining me to do just that is true crime author... The host of Crime Writers On, Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and HGTV and Me, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Kevin. Thank you for uh, plugging all of my other podcasts. I appreciate it. I, but I only have one sheet of paper, so <laughs> don't take on any more. <laughs> Rounding out our panel is our special guest from the Slate Podcast Network. It's producer and writer Benjamin Frisch. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, you have a talent that is completely not suited for podcasting. You're also you're a, a graphic artist. Yeah, I'm a cartoonist. Oh, okay. Oh, it's okay to say cartoonist? <laughs> oh, yeah. I prefer. I much prefer cartoonist to, um, like, graphic novelist or whatever. It's, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Like, I'm a cartoonist. Like, I draw dumb You see why pictures. I like him? <laughs> yeah. So when people, like, say, oh, I do graphic, I, you know, I ink graphic novels. Are they being snooty as shit or what? No, I mean, I have described my book um, as a graphic novel fairly often just because people know what that is. But it's mm-hmm. good graphic novel is a marketing term. It was invented so that um, people would think that comic books were respectable, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> like mommy porn. And they, and they were they were wrong. They're not respectable. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> You know, I like to ask New Yorkers whether the city they see on Law and Order on SVU is the city that they know. You know, I actually this may go in better later in the episode, but I looked up where Patricia Richardson's house is (laughs) um, in this episode. And it's in Uh like southern it's in like deep south Brooklyn, like sheep. I think sheep's heads. Sheep's Head Bay, I have it written down. You can smell the salt air. Yeah, which just seemed like sort of an odd location to set things in. I mean, when you when you live in New York, you do kind of have this relationship with film and television where you start to see things that you know, like when they're in Grand Central Station. It's like, oh, I've been there. It's like sort of this warm, fuzzy feeling that you get, I guess, sometimes. Mm-hmm. 
But this, this episode is not exactly filled with exotic locations or interesting sort of New York things about it. I actually agree. I mean, the thing I kept saying in this episode, and I, I know we'll talk about it a little bit more later, is that I couldn't figure out, like, the money situation of the people in this episode because Law & Order... You obsess about that way I, too I do. Much. I love the real estate. I love the locations. And I don't think that, you know, the main character in the show was supposed to live in Brooklyn. I think she maybe was supposed to live in Manhattan, like, in a brownstone, and yet she was a receptionist. And, like, her boyfriend was, like, had a retail job, and he said he had a doorman. It just didn't really seem, like, very New York grounded in this particular episode. So I agree. This one didn't seem to have that, that same sense of place that we often get. Nothing about this episode is grounded. <laughs> this episode is out of control. Yes, I agree. Oh, I'm so relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> well, we like to do serious analysis here, so I don't know why we agreed to do an SVU from season one. This is the- this is back in the era, though. Like, if you there are articles written about how, like, in, in season one of SVU, it was actually uh, many of the episodes actually a good show. Like, it was like a, it was a serious drama. It took itself seriously. Some of the writing was pretty good. This is not one of those. <laughs> oh no! Well, I don't know. Oh, I don't no. know. I, I think that it has some crazy elements, mm-hmm. um, but I think it also is is trying to be you know that earnest. They're trying to get some of the earnest thoughtfulness that is predominant in season one because of the writing team and that escapes for the rest of the series. Hmm. Mm, disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna act, not going to talk to you then. I'm going to ask Ben. Ben, do you have a favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. Uh, I, have a, I certainly have a favorite detective. Um, my favorite detective is, of course, Jerry Orbach as like, yeah. uh, Lenny Briscoe. And who I sort of know as Scruff McGruff, the crime dog. Um, <laughs> and uh, Wait a minute. Is, is, did he really do that? Or he just seems like the, the crime he, dog? He just, like, to me, he just like looks like Scruff McGruff, oh, okay. the crime dog. I mean, because he was Lumiere in Breeding the Beast. I don't, he could have been the crime dog. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. Wait a minute. Wait, did um, we just tell the cartoonist something he didn't know? About a cartoon? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Ben. You have got to get out of New York once in a while. That is an animated film. Oh, oh, all right. <laughs> Thanks. We use proper all right, terminology all right, all right. here. Thank you. Here at Slate. Yeah, okay, right. At Slate. They, they don't mess around. <laughs> Fact checkers. I get it. I Editors. Get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, a lot of people like Jerry Orbach. Can you, can you make a case for him? Oh, just that he's great. Like, so my relationship to Law & Order is, like, I'm not a Law & Order completist. It falls into a category of television that I sort of think of as ambient television, as, like, TV that was just, like, kind of on all the time that I just, like, watch with my dad. <laughs> so, like, a lot of my feelings about Law & Order are sort of tied up with nostalgia. Um, but I definitely always liked uh, Jerry Orbach and, um, I guess, if I had to choose a partner, uh, Ray Curtis as Benjamin Bratt, I think. Good choice. That's a pretty good choice. Yeah, classic one. Classic one. Now, do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Again, I feel very, very strongly about Sam Waterston as Jack McCoy, or as I call him, Law Dad. Law um, Dad. He's just... <laughs> and then um, probably Jill Hennessy as uh, Clerk and Kate. Yeah, again, again, that's like the... Uh... 
most popular most choices. Popular yes. ones. Yeah, among the, among our classier guests for sure. Yeah, they're not deep. They're not deep cuts. <laughs> well, hey, you know, people like Stairway to Heaven, and they like Moby Dick. But you know, it's like it's Led Zeppelin. You know, it's still cool to like. <laughs> I don't Stairway. really like either. Is that uh, okay? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but go back. Why do you call him Law Dad? I don't know. He just sort of seems like a Law Dad. <laughs> like like kids would come in on his knee and they say. Tell me about the Fifth Circuit Court, Dad. Yeah. Well, son. Yeah, he just, like, knows all about the law. He's just, like... (laughs) (laughs) Now let's take a look at the first half of this episode of SVU, Season 1, Episode 5, Wanderlust. Benson and Stabler report to a brownstone where the tenant is dead, a pair of panties shoved in his mouth and sealed with duct tape. Time of death, early evening. No sign of forced entry. The body was left right there in plain view. But we do have these. Top of the line. Mm, nice panties. Shilari Hishi? He was a writer. What about the tape over the Vic's mouth? No prints. Uh, no roll of that type of tape was found in the house. Taping the mouth shut, the panties in the throat, both suggest that the killer had a personal agenda. Yeah, to embarrass the hell out of him. Or to shut him up. The landlady, Annabelle Hayes, says Richard Schiller was a travel writer who got around. Everyone in the squad breaks out their high school modern language abilities <laughs> to call all over the world looking for someone from his travel books that he might have crossed. Of course, if those people were actually all in foreign countries, they probably have an alibi for last night. <laughs> Annabelle says her daughter, Virginia, hasn't been home since the murder. The teenage girl, obviously played by a 30-year-old woman, <laughs> is arrested for shoplifting... In Grand Central Station and brought in for questioning. Virginia says those panties there are moms. The landlady had been throwing herself at Schiller, but he wasn't interested. Now sober, Annabelle suddenly remembers where she was at the time of the murder, out on a date with her boyfriend, George Glass. No, I mean Tom Dayton. <laughs> Was that a Brady Bunch reference? It was. Nicely done. It was. Uh, he had the completely non-creepy job of fitting teenage girls for prom dresses. <laughs> Their date ended early when they got into a fight about Schiller in the middle of the restaurant. Annabelle drank the bar dry while Dayton went home. Meantime, back at the Stabler house, Elliot is concerned about his older daughter, Maureen, who actually looks like she's 14 years old. <laughs> Stabler wonders if her hymen is still in one piece... <laughs> To which the mother of his four children says to the husband with five siblings, uh, how can we possibly know of such a thing? <laughs> a background check shows that Tom Dayton is actually dead. His older brother, Scott, having served time for child molestation, has been using his identity. After a brief foot race through racks of prom dresses, the imposter is caught and taken into custody. Okay, so um, right from the start, Stabler does a very interesting thing in the first minute of this show. When he shows up at the crime scene, Elliot Stabler, sex crimes. He identifies himself as being from sex crimes. Yes. Now, do you think this is for the audience's sake? Do you think maybe while they were shooting this, they still hadn't settled on a name for the series? <laughs> Rebecca, you go first. I think they hadn't settled on anything when they were shooting yeah, this episode. Like... I, didn't th- I don't think they had settled on um, how to write dialogue. I don't think they settled on how to have continuity. But yeah, he says he's from Sex Crimes. I think that might be just a pin. Maybe they hadn't decided on the title of the show yet, but certainly the special victims moniker actors didn't know it for sure when they filmed this episode. I don't know what they had nailed down, but they definitely did not have uh, Virginia's age nailed down. 
Um, <laughs> because if you like the first time that I watched this episode, I figured that I had missed at some point when they mention her actual age. They mentioned that she is a teenager. But uh, in rewatching it, I noticed that they never actually mention her age, which is because she looks like she's 30. <laughs> yeah, she's just young enough. Yeah, but there's some weird things about Virginia besides the weirdness we find out about later. One is, who the hell knows what their mom's panties look like? Like, no one does, you know? Unless you're actually the one doing the laundry, which I don't think Virginia was. Or you've been wearing them <laughs> while committing a homicide, but, you know, I, not to get picky you digress. or anything. Yeah. But if you, even if you do know what your mom's panties do like... Well, don't you know like... what yours don't? <laughs> I mean, by process of elimination? It's true. Yeah, okay. That's an excellent point. <laughs> so, uh, how is the squad room different in these first couple of episodes of the series than it is... When they get to, it's now the Batcave. Um, for one, there are a bunch of other people in the squad <laughs> that are just standing behind the characters we know. You mean like listening the to the crime as if yeah, like, we might be able to like help somebody out? somebody standing next to Munch looking over his shoulder at a piece of paper. There's like two people standing behind Benson, just like random people. And I'm like, are they in the squad? Are they ever going to talk? Is this actually a squad, an actually unit, not just these same four people that we see in every episode? That was one big change. I'm not sure if you all noticed this, but the squad room is filled with stuffed animals, and I what? don't know why. So there is like a chair in the background. On In one shot, you can see a chair in the background that just has like a whole bunch of stuffed animals like sitting on it. And then in a later scene in the squad room, there's just like a teddy bear or like one of those like monkey stuffed monkeys with suction cups that's just like stuck to the front of a computer monitor. And I was wondering, it's like maybe that's in a previous episode that they set up that there's like, I don't know, a stuffed animal chair for their special victim to give to special victims? I don't know. It's only the fifth episode. There was no previous episode. <laughs> I mean, there were four other episodes, but I, I, I don't know. It's like, why are there stuffed animals in the squad room? <laughs> I think it's because there are so many bad men that you have to point to so many different Oh, like where, dolls. where like, on yeah. the monkey with the, the suction mon- cups did the bad man touch exactly, you kind of thing? Is that yeah. what you're getting at? But there's yeah. like, it's not that there's just like one stuffed animal. It's like there's a whole <laughs> bunch on this chair and they're small. This episode just raised a lot of questions, this being Chief of <laughs> Well, the other thing that was different about the squad room uh, from this episode, from you know, between this episode and later seasons, is um, the uh, strong and very, very strident amount of um, literary analysis that goes on during uh, <laughs> during departmental oh meetings. Oh, my God. Yeah, we certainly get mm. much... At top douchebaggery. <laughs> top, top like college freshman just took a lit course douchebaggery. Hmm, it's good to know the macho Hemingway ideal isn't entirely dead in this weepy age. I realized it was not the destination that mattered to me as much as the journey itself. It is the insatiable drive to keep moving forward that propels me. His wanderlust is one adverb short of Robert James Waller. Hmm, the bridges of Madison County. That was incredible. How about incredibly banal? Short, muscular sentences displaying a total absence of original thinking. I was talking about the movie. But it did give us the opportunity to find out that Cassidy loves the bridges of Madison County. So there was that. There was that little like ray of like little bright Cassidy sunshine in there. Yeah, as well. that's great. So we, seventeen seasons later, we can be like, <laughs> hey, you want to? You like Meryl Streep movies? <laughs> and that really informs your character. You know, the, one of the things that I also did like, though, which is you know different now, when they wanted to like check out you know a little bit about what's going on with the victim they took a map of the world <laughs> and they put a push pin in manhattan 
And then they took all sorts of string and ran it all over the map as if to say, well, we've got... (laughs) We got a suspect here in Bolivia and here in Pango Pango, as opposed to, of course, now where- uh, Fancy PowerPoint. Yeah, PowerPoint, (laughs) 3D rotation. I mean, it looks like the weather map from Channel 7. It is like, so I am, as I said, I'm not a completist at all, and I've watched even less SVU um, than, than Original Recipe. But does the I assume the the SVU set comes to resemble more like the CSI fishbowl techno you are correct state <laughs> sort yep. of thing yep. like and and this is one thing that I actually sort of liked about this is like it doesn't seem like a realistic police station but it does sort of feel like it, it feels like more like down market. I don't know. It's just like a little bit more realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of appreciate it. I appreciate it too. And just one little detail I want to point out too, because this is the first season of SVU. And the last thing that we saw Mariska Hargitay in before this was ER, where she played uh, Anthony Edwards' dumb nurse girlfriend that no one wanted him to date. Mm -hmm. And she is really like, and I'm sorry to go here because I know you hate it when I do. She's like peak brunette in this uh, part of SVU. What does that mean? It means like later in later seasons, there's a lot more like just stuff going on with Mariska's hair with like highlights and bobs and like layers. And this, it's just like the straight, believable, uh, monochromatic color that you would imagine a cop would actually maybe have. Maybe a little too shiny. Peak brunette Olivia. I really appreciated that. And I miss it, quite frankly. I just... She is gorgeous. In this, she, she is, is gorgeous. unbelievably she is. beautiful. I feel like we have to basically start with Patricia Richardson in this episode. Now, Ben is right. Uh, we do have a, a hey, it's that girl. Hey, it's that girl. It's Patricia Richardson. Uh, she was Jill from Home Improvement, which had just gone off the air five months before this oh, episode. I was wondering appeared. that. Yeah, yeah. She gives the performance of. A lifetime for like community theater actress performing in a Tennessee <laughs> Williams okay. play. Welcome to my house. She found the body. Wife, girlfriend, what? Landlord. She lives here with her daughter, Virginia. Rented a room to the back. He was the best tenant. Clean, quiet, always paid on time, early, even. <laughs> Pretty much everyone who is not like a main SVU regular basically thinks that they are in a Tennessee Williams play uh, in this episode. Like from right off the bat, like Patricia Richardson, uh, it like is extremely irate from the start. Uh, I think that Stabler, like, or maybe it's Benson, orders her to go get a to go get them coffee, and in a huff she does. Um, she just makes some crack about him having. Uh, oh, he had a fantastic credit score. Like, <laughs> but actually, it does extend uh, to Benson at least when he he's pulling the panties out of uh, the mouth of the victim. He says. Looks like he choked on his own words. No, which doesn't. one doesn't make any sense because those are panties, not words. He is a writer, but he choked on panties, presumably. We find out later that that's not exactly what happened. But um, the writer of this episode feels very self-satisfied uh, in some of the flourishes, which I hope that we will get into. But I got to say that she wasn't used like SVU guest stars are used today, not the known actors and actresses. She wasn't the obvious killer. She wasn't the attorney. She wasn't the victim. She was just another supporting actress in this uh, in the show. 
And if this were season 10 instead of season one, we'd all go, oh, she did it. <laughs> First thing we would see, right, Rebecca? Absolutely. 100% absolutely. And it was also, she was also used very straight. Like she was playing, you know, she, she did scenery chew in every scene, so much so that it made uh, Elliot Stabler's acting look like almost natural, which was an interesting contrast because usually I'm like looking at him as a scenery chewer. But she definitely was like playing a bunch of different characters throughout the episode. At the beginning, it's the landlady who's, you know, kind of horrified and also put out that and someone drunk. has died in. In the like Mies van der Rohe chair in her guest room or whatever, and then th- we see that later super weird scene where she's a receptionist and it's like a completely oh my different character that she's playing. It's very very strange. Yeah, she's in that one. She's like in Home Improvement, like she's in a sitcom or something. <laughs> I do want to say though, just to like put an exclamation point on Ben's point about the underwear in the mouth, like the chewing eating his own words. He's also a travel writer, so it really it like really made no sense if he was like a sex writer. Yes. If they had stuffed some overhead <laughs> luggage in his mouth. <laughs> exactly. Or one of those sleep masks that you wear on the airplane. <laughs> Who recognizes Virginia? Vir- the teenage daughter? The teenage daughter. That's Lynn Collins. Mm-hmm. Does underwear look familiar to you? Mommy's. She always wore the good stuff when she wanted to get lucky. Fat lot of good it did her this time. And Rebecca, what was she just in that we watched? I don't know. What was she just in that we watched? She was Natalie, the linguistic expert <gasps> in the Unabomber miniseries. Really? Really. That obnoxious like side girlfriend that they pretended wasn't a girlfriend in that horrible true crime show? Yes. Oh, wow. Now that makes a lot of sense to me. I sort of guess. You I don't know. <laughs> but I'll tell you, like this show, episode was a long time ago, and she looked pretty young in that thing we just saw. So maybe she actually was a teenager when she filmed this. It could have been. It could have been. <laughs> now, we, we do have one other, hey, it's that girl. Who recognizes the waitress who made the vibrator joke? I told her she was better off without him. Women are always better off when left to their own mechanical devices. Not me. Nope. <laughs> ben, any chance? No, no. That is Lisa LaPria. Mm-hmm. Now, she played one of the Ivy League card counters in the movie 21. Mm-hmm. She was a gal pal in the movie Super Fun Night. Mm-hmm. And then she was the neighbor Robin, who was the first character on the show to say, don't trust the bitch in apartment 23. Oh, all right. Well, those are all pretty obscure, hey, it's that girl references, I have you to You know say. what? That's why we go, hey, it's that girl. <laughs> okay, here's what we know about the Stabler household. <laughs> They have four kids in one bathroom. Yes. It is the most depressing (laughs) suburban house set I think I have ever seen after all in the family. Like, every time there's an interior shot in Elliot Stabler's house, it's like, no wonder he never wants to go home. There's like that sad, like, PC in the middle of the living room. (laughs) There's a lost mid-90s sitcom about the Stabler family. Like, that it's like, one dad, five women. Like, what you gonna do? He can't understand women. Women are all victims. Some kid with glasses comes in, did I do that? He and his wife randomly make out on the couch or the kids are in bed. Like, who? I don't think it's random. They end up having five kids by the time it's done. Yes, but who? Like, you, nobody the makes out. Catholic, the writer's Catholic, you know. <laughs> and all the, But his hands were still, like, in good places. And, of course, that's when all of a sudden he realizes, oh, my God, my junior high school daughter. No, she's 14. With, she's 14. Yes. With braces might someday have sex. <laughs> and while I've been working sex crimes... 
every day yeah. for the past couple of years, it never occurred to me that my own daughter has a vagina. It's like it's like the first time it's ever really hit home that he works in sex crimes. We saw it happen, right? We saw it happen when his wife mentioned that his daughter got a date to the homecoming dance, which, by the way, she was a little bit too proud of. She was like, can you believe the fullback of the, of the football team? He asked our daughter, and I'm like... What's wrong with your daughter that you think yeah. someone I mean, would if it a quarterback, you should be half fullback. You know, what? On the JV squad? I mean, come on. You when know, you can get a starter? Yeah, it's like she's not giving it up to him. Maybe there'll be a hand job, but that's probably the most she's going to get. It was a very, very awkward set of scenes between the two of them for sure. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. All right, now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Dayton admits he's been using his brother's identity but denies molesting Virginia. He says mother and daughter have been vying for Schiller's attentions and Virginia won. Virginia tells Benson and Stabler that Dayton would come into her room at night and do unkind things. She says one time Schiller heard the assault and threatened to kill Dayton if he did it again. The night of the murder, Virginia says she came home from swimming, was wearing her mom's panties, put them in the hamper, then found Schiller dead in the room. But Benson becomes suspicious of the girl. Anybody who's seen a Tory Spelling movie of the week could have given the same performance that Virginia did. I would think you, of all people, would be on her side. Every scenario has different interpretations, okay? So let's just try this one on. Virginia fled the scene of the crime. She was scared. Oh, and O.J. Simpson was taking an afternoon drive? She thinks Virginia is lying about Dayton and had an affair with Schiller. Stabler refuses to believe that a little girl, who looks like she's now too old to stay on her mother's Obamacare, (laughs) could be capable of a murderous seduction. Is he projecting his feelings for his daughter onto Virginia? Oh, yes, Dr. Freud, he is. (laughs) After being discharged from the hospital for a half-hearted suicide attempt, 
that we never hear anything more about, <laughs> Virginia uh. summons the detectives to her house. It's a classic confessional soliloquy by a minor without a lawyer. Virginia says she was Schiller's lover. He promised to take her away from her life of quiet desperation on his many travels, but never made good on the promise. He finally rejected her, saying he needed to travel light. So Virginia choked him with her knee on his throat and stuffed the panties in his dead mouth. Later, Stabler confines in Cragen in episode five of what will be 267 more for him, <laughs> that working this sex crime stuff kind of fucks with your head. <laughs> Cragen says it's only when you stop feeling things that it's time to hang them up. <laughs> mm. Okay, so uh, before we get back to the case, Rebecca, what's worse, Olivia's baby drama or Elliot's parenting style? Oh, Elliot's parenting stuff is so creepy. Olivia's baby mama drama is tiresome and sexist and unnecessary. Elliot Stabler, whatever he looks at or is in a scene with one of his kids or talks about one of his kids, it is the creepiest most off-putting promise keepery bullshit I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not into it. It is the foundation of my issues with Elliot Stabler. And my favorite part of this episode, which you did not mention your synopsis, is when Olivia calls him on his disgusting, sexist, daddy-daughter bullshit in the street. Of course, she's also being disgusting and sexist in a different way in that scene. But, you know, it's my favorite part of the episode. <laughs> well, Ben, we hear... Olivia Benson revealed that she had an affair with an older man. How old were you? Almost 17. And he was? Older than 17. About as old as I am now. And I'll tell you something. I couldn't have loved him more. I don't care how you look at it. It's an unequal relationship. Being in love, that does not absolve an affair. I'm not saying that love is, is ever an excuse. I'm saying that soulmates come in all shapes and sizes and ages. Soulmates? Come on, Olivia. Elliot. And she, quote, couldn't have loved him more, close quote. Uh, that does not sound like the Olivia Benson that we see on television today. What did you think of that? This, the whole The sexual politics around this episode could not be written today, I don't think. This is very much a product of 1999 when this episode came out. It's really weird and ham-handed, and I could not understand what she was arguing when she's saying um, she had an affair with an older man. And she says, uh, this is another sort of like a little bit Tennessee Williams-y line where soulmates <laughs> come in all shapes and sizes and ages. <laughs> like, uh, like, what is she arguing there? It's like, actually, by saying that, she's really arguing... I guess that uh, Virginia could have actually had a relationship with this guy, like a real relationship with this guy. But I, I mean, I guess maybe that also leads in the fact that she could have killed him. But it's all really weird. And the like Stabler's really weird, toxic masculinity obsession with his daughter's virginity <laughs> is uh, really strange. And it it feels so like like ma like sort of dumb macho in a way that. I don't know. I want my detectives on SVU, I think, to be a little bit uh, more enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but Olivia is enlightened because her source material for like all of her doubts about Virginia is a quote, a Tory spelling movie of the week. I mean, that's enlightened, <laughs> right? Isn't that better than the literary analysis we got at the start of the episode? I I'm just thinking there's a whole lot of fucking daddy issues with this episode. <laughs> uh, ben, so there's this scene in which the detectives talk about the appeal of a perp to the uh, the, the, the the disease of hebophilia. What? Um, 
What? It's not pedophilia for prepubescence. I, it's maybe it's splitting hairs, but the term is <laughs> hebophilia, and they're talking about well. You know, they, uh, they're they starting to look good. And she's, a, she's a child. Yeah, but the appeal stretches way beyond a midlife crisis. The way a halter top shows off a flat stomach. The mature discussions you can have about the Backstreet Boys. Come on, everyone knows that women mature faster than men. It's true that a good Mrs. Robinson's hard to find, but women maturing faster than men? Conspiracy. The government's been covering up the harmful side effects of RBGH, a hormone that farmers use to produce more milk. Did it sound to you like maybe they were justifying um, old men lusting after prepubescence? I feel like this episode is so confused and was just trying to, like, find things to argue about that, like, it's very hard for me (laughs) to state definitively what this episode is arguing in any case, well, we know what Munch is arguing. He says that it's hormones and milk that's giving girls their period. That's right, and, on, oh, yeah. and they're all talking about how sexy these young girls are. And then Jeffries and Olivia are standing there, just nodding. They're just nodding along as these men are saying like these disgusting things about teenage girls in the squad room in the sex crimes unit. Well, I think maybe all those other people who were hanging around were supposed <laughs> to jump in. In the words of an Alabama congressman, it's just like um, it's just like Joseph and Mary. All right, now Virginia says she choked Schiller by putting her knee on his throat. Now, this guy wrestled crocodiles in Thailand, but we have to believe he couldn't push a teenage girl with no balance off of him with both hands. Listen, she's also a teenager who calls him Schiller. A 30-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah, 30-year-old. That's right. Yes, yeah. A 30-year-old girl who calls a him Schiller. A 30-year-old teenager. Yes. Who, who, who refers to him by his last name, Schiller, when she talks about him. Which Actually, is... it's Shilly is what, what she's, she's calling him. Yeah. Well, we know she's a strong swimmer. I mean, we, we do have that random, for no reason, scene in the pool, which is basically like another... I, I, I also feel like talking about how patchworky this episode is. The tea shop, the pool. It was pretty much an exercise in like who will let us film here. It was almost like. <laughs> I, I kind of disagree. Ben, tell me what you think of this. I think the reason that they have her swimming and coming out of the pool is to be slightly titillating. Oh, absolutely. Because it's supposed to be. You know, even though, you know, now we're kind of like as the audience, like, oh, we shouldn't be thinking naughty things about this minor who obviously is, you know, actually in SAG and AFTRA. And, <laughs> uh, but uh, but now she's sort of coming out of the water in a one piece bathing suit and it's supposed to, uh, you know, be a dog whistle to the audience. Yeah, I can see why a guy would get with that. There's a scene after that when um, they go to talk to her uh, to talk to Virginia at her mother's house, um, and she gets turned away at the door by um, Patricia Richardson, and uh, Virginia is in the background, and she is clearly not wearing a bra. And I <laughs> can only ass- like I can only assume that that was um, intentional. So in the end, there's this good scene with Stabler and Cragen, uh, where he talks about his feelings. I saw that girl like I saw my daughter, as a victim. Not as someone capable of acting, feeling, loving on their own. Your feelings will always be a part of your police work. Yeah, but... The more you try to deny that, the more control they will have over you. We work with different permutations of sex all day and sometimes all night long. They don't worry when you feel something. Worry when you don't. Um, did it seem to you like Stabler got it or that he's just going to bottle up everything anyway? 
Well, have you watched the subsequent like 47 years of this show? We know exactly. Suppose you've only seen five episodes. He's not going to get it. Uh, No, I don't think that. I think that what they're basically doing is setting up that you're going to see iterations of this conversation for the next 15 years. That's what's going to happen here. And what's interesting is that while Elliot Stabler ages over that period of time, Cragen does not. He looks exactly (laughs) the same in this episode than he does in his final episode of SVU. He already lost all of his hair. He looks like Charlie Brown. I mean, how much older can he? (laughs) He possibly be. It's like the episode is telling you like, oh, he's learned a lesson, but I don't really believe it because there's nothing about this episode makes any sense. Like why? So why does she confess? There is no reason why she confesses. It's never explained like why she put the underwear in his mouth. Is it like to make it seem like he choked on... The underwear, because she choked him with, I guess, her knee on his neck and then put the underwear in his mouth. But it's not clear. Like, she never explains exactly why. The missing clue is then she put duct tape over that. Which they never mention again. Nobody got any fingerprints on it. They couldn't find the roll of tape. Right. You know, it's just like, there's the perfect crime. Of course- you know, uh, your vag juice is all over those <laughs> panties in her mouth. But, you know, make sure you don't leave any fingerprints on the duct yeah. tape. <laughs> all right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. Can't wait. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the Headlines. Writers of this episode did little to conceal their inspiration from the famous book Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. But hidden within the episode are many more callbacks to the scandalous novel that bookworms would recognise. Though spelt differently, both Virginia and Lolita shared the last name of Hayes. SVU detectives questioned the landlady and Virginia's mother, Annabelle Hayes. In the book, Charlotte Hayes is Lolita's mother. Likewise, she's the hard-drinking landlady of the house, enamoured by the writer living upstairs, and has a tumultuous relationship with her daughter, Dolores, who acquires the name Lolita from her stepfather. The murder victim in the episode is Richard Schiller. That's the same name as the man that the adult Lolita marries in the book. Nabokov's 1955 novel received as much literary praise as it did public scandal. In the 60 years since its publication, the term Lolita has become shorthand to describe a young girl of sexual temptation and, unlike the book, the instigator and not the victim. Lolita has been made into two movies, two operas, two ballets, and even a Broadway musical. And an SVU episode. (laughs) This is not an adaptation of Lolita. Lolita is one of the great books ever written in English, and this is trash. Now, my first question is that are in in the show, the girl's name is Virginia. Mm -hmm. Is this another joke from the writers? I think the whole thing is more proof that a high school sophomore wrote this episode. I really do. Really? I really think this high is that somebody, there was some writer was on strike or something and some producer like called in his high school sophomore niece and she's like, well, I just read this book. (laughs) I'm just going to, I had to write a paper about it. I'm just going to go ahead and sub in all of these other names for all these characters. She's not a virgin. We'll call her Virginia. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So Ben, you you obviously have an affection for Nabokov's book. Yeah. uh, The... Lolita is one of my favorite novels. It's a um, strange and seductive novel, and I don't mean that in like a, a sexual way. I mean it in like Humbert Humbert. Oh, is sure the, you don't, but keep going. Well, so the the <laughs> uh, point of view character 
is Humbert Humbert writing in the first person, and he's extremely mm-hmm. charming. Uh, he is also uh, in love with a child. And the way that he sort of writes, and because it's so fully from this sort of person's perspective. Who's self-delusional. Yeah, that and and it's so unreliable um and then eventually sort of uh, in near closer to the end of the book sort of starts begins to break down and he almost becomes i'm not sure if psychotic is the word but uh reality sort of really begins to break down uh humbert humbert is this sort of the center of that book lolita lola as a character is a little bit unknowable in the book because uh, it's not from her perspective. All we know about her, we glean through the writing of this guy. And in the end, I mean, Lola does not end up with Humbert Humbert. So to me, it's like how this is really the only thing is that there is a younger woman and I guess an older man involved. In <laughs> her, but that, like, what does that have to do with Lolita? Like Lolita is a an extremely complex and specific book about an extremely fucked up guy and his paramour who may or may not have been into him depending on how you read him as a a, a, a narrator reliable or unreliable it, it just smacks of literary pretension like of me in high school like of course it's like yeah I'm gonna make some uh, references to Nabokov in this script like you might catch them if you're pretty smart like me (laughs) (laughs) now Rebecca forget Lolita the book the movie everything for a second in today's society are young women made to feel empowered about their sexuality in age appropriate relationships or are they shamed um uh, in our house or like no, in generally society. in society no, I, mean, I think we're in a really weird but great moment right now where you know those of us who were raised you know we're like gen xers you know we had a really screwed up like way of being told and taught about sex when we were growing up was basically like don't do it there's never a boy allowed in your room and they're never allowed to ever go anywhere and there's age <laughs> there's age all yes. of a sudden I, I do think there's more um i think kids have a little bit more power now because of what they know from the internet like they know more about sex by the time they're 10 than we knew by the time we were 20 in a way and I think a lot of adults are are scared by that but that of course brings up a whole other thing about like porn and all that stuff so I don't know I don't know um, there is like one very specific thing though about the time this episode came out um, this was a time 1999 where sexy teen stories like reached a, like a cultural peak. 1999 was also the same year that that movie Cruel Intentions came out mm-hmm. with Sarah Michelle Gellar and, and Ryan Phillippe, which was basically about 16 year olds playing sex and manipulation games. Right. Right. It, this episode is like trying to capture, I think, some of that cultural relevance with this whole Lolita weird <laughs> attempt that they made. But just like fails on every level and it's very hard to compare it to the way teens talk about sex these days at least for me it just felt very disorienting for me you know what immediately came to mind uh also is that 1998 uh is when hit me baby one more time came out the <laughs> the britney spears oh song yes which that conversation was out there yeah the the album hit me baby one more time that featured that song was did come out in 1999 so i i think you're right that there's like 
There was a sort of sexy schoolgirl moment, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera was also sort of of that time, right? Right. Yeah. Right. All right, last question I'm going to ask Rebecca and then Ben. Uh, Rebecca, if I describe a girl as being a Lolita, what inference do you get? That there's something wrong with you. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. How about somebody say the newspaper referred to this girl as Lolita, as a Lolita? Oh, like the Long Island Lolita, like yeah. Amy Fisher? That's what I always think about. I always think about the Don't Amy Fisher Don't think of Amy case. Fisher. Think about today's, tomorrow's Lolita in the paper. Well. What, what do you infer? It, it infers that the, the, the young girl is somehow at fault for the situation that she's in, which is not what the book is mm-hmm. trying to say, but that is the cultural takeaway from the book, is that a Lolita is like a seductress who also happens to be 14, that it's her fault that you can't like not want to see her naked. It's her fault. That's the inference I take right. away from that reference. And Ben, e- even though you're a, a uh, you know a literary fan here, if I were to say, oh, this newspaper article describes this girl as being a Lolita, what inference do you take away from that? I mean, if they meant it unironically, I think it would be really weird. Um, but <laughs> I, I hear the word, I mean, it would be deeply fucked up to refer to a woman, like a young girl as a Lolita. I, I, the, the way that I hear it much more often now is in reference to fashion and um, a style of dress that you see in like that was popular popularized in Japan, like Gothic Lolita outfits and stuff. And I, you know, am you know related to the comics culture and stuff. And so, I guess I have a slightly different association with that word, which is really more about fashion. But like, if somebody were to describe a girl as a Lolita, like that's deeply fucked up. Like <laughs> she is portrayed by. The writers of this story as a teenage temptress, I guess, but it's not an archetype that really exists in the real world. Like it is an archetype that exists in fiction and in the minds of fucked up men. <laughs> right. Um, although right. I guess this was, I guess the the writing credits, uh, the writing credit is a woman, uh, Wendy West. I assume is a woman. Okay, so let's put aside everything Rebecca said about uh, you know sexual empowerment. Can we just agree without having to go to Urban Dictionary that when people say they refer, they use the term Lolita mm-hmm. today. They are talking about, in their minds, a teenage seductress. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which isn't cool, but yes. <laughs> or somebody who dresses up in like in a maid outfit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Ben Frisch. Benjamin, where can our listeners follow you online? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just at Benjamin Frisch. I think my Instagram is also just at Benjamin Frisch. Uh, and you can go to my website at benjaminfrisch.me. But I would tell you that um, the best way you could follow me is to listen to the Slate Culture Gab Fest, um, which is the show that I produce at Slate. Uh, and also, uh, maybe if you're interested in comics, pick up my book, which is called The Fun Family uh, from Top Shelf uh, Productions. And you can buy that on Amazon or your local bookseller. And Rebecca, you don't have any books yourself. but nope. how can <laughs> How can our listeners follow Wait you? Wait a minute. We wrote like five books together. What are you talking about? <laughs> but I'm not going to uh, you know talk about them right here. But listeners can follow me online on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. Check out our podcast, Crime Writers on and uh, please listen to my new show HGTV and me oh and also listen to mom and dad are fighting oh yeah there's yes, that too which, which I also produce <laughs> which Benjamin and, and um, <laughs> features Rebecca and uh, other smart people that's like giving unqualified parenting advice mm. <laughs> anything else you want to take credit for in my house Ben <laughs> did you mow my lawn too 
You can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Fair Act exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com, sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.